<laughs> I can't remember the last time he was actually here, but it's, uh, it's unusual to have him here because of his health, but it's so good to see his face, uh, to be amongst us. And you know that we have been praying for him faithfully. We'll continue to do that. But just to see him is a great encouragement uh, to me and to, to all of us here. Good to have you here, each one of you here for uh, service and worship today, and uh, we're glad to be together to come, uh, to come and to worship and to serve God. Our scripture reading this morning is found through our series in Galatians chapter 4. Let's turn there in our Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers have Bibles available. Raise your hand and they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. Galatians chapter 4. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Let me start at chapter 3, verse 23, and then read through chapter 4. Galatians 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith will be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way... We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would, got, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, 
but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. May God give us understanding through this text as we have read through it, as we will preach through it this morning. It's kind of a tongue twister of idea to, to think through it, and I pray that God will help us as we think and, and preach through it and, and get the essence of what God has for us and um, benefit from his truth this morning. Would you pause with me now? going to a word of prayer after prayer a choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word in Galatians chapter 4 Father we thank you for this time together we thank you how you have gathered us to worship and to praise you bless us now as we listen to your word as we've heard it spoken we pray that we might hear and understand as it's preached that you might give the understanding to it and that you might get the glory from that explanation and that preaching, that it might promote the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, that we might glory in the salvation that comes through Christ and through Christ alone, by faith alone, that we might give our lives to live for you and to serve one another. So we thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this day. We thank you for the fact that as uh, we read in the Psalms this morning, you are king overall. You are in control, and though we have debated in this country over who will lead us as a president, we, we need to know, Lord, that you are still in control regardless of who takes that office, and we can trust and rely on you as you guide us. We pray for your grace, Lord, to endure the trials that are sure to come. We pray, Lord, that we might endure them in a way that brings glory to you, that we might be a testimony before you that more and more people might come to hear the gospel and come to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. You might save them, redeem them, and bring them into local churches where they can grow and share their testimony with others. So we thank you for 
the work that you're doing, even though we don't understand all that's being done. We pray and we trust you, Lord. We thank you for, for your leadership over us and your power over us. We thank you for that. We submit to you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you speak to our hearts today, right now, through your word. And minister to each heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let's work ourselves through this chapter in Galatians chapter 4. Holy Spirit has blessed us through his word as we look in Galatians and gives us an appreciation for the gospel. And the central point of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that brings glory to God, brings glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it empties man of his glory. There's no room for me or you to be heroes in our own salvation. God and God alone is the hero. He's the one that brings us life, uh, gives us life and brings us into his family by his grace, by his doing, not by anything that we have done. And this gospel is emphasized. It, it needs to be emphasized in every era, at every point and every time uh, in history because we so easily, mankind so easily goes back to that religion that wants to do something to be right with God. And God says, that's not, a, that's not possible. It's impossible for you or I to do something to be right with God. Only way that... It, the only way possible is for God to do that himself, and he's done that in Jesus Christ, and we are to glory in Christ. Paul says to, to, to the Galatians, there are some who trouble you with this foreign gospel, with another gospel which isn't another. There, there is only one gospel. He says, I want you to throw that old mess out. I want you to reject it. I want you to stand firm on the gospel by which your salvation rests, and that rests solely on Jesus Christ. He says these imposters, these, these uh, uh, fraudulent teachers, they want glory for themselves. They want to make you something so that they can boast in you for themselves. And he says, don't, don't have that. So he goes to explain, um, we looked last week of, of the problem with the law is that it cannot produce righteousness that is acceptable uh, before God. What it does is define righteousness and define sin, but it does not produce it in us. It simply labels us as missing the mark. We fall short. The law does a good job of showing us that we do fall short. God never intended for the law to produce righteousness, for the law to produce life. He intended for that to come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something that is produced in us. It's something that is given to us, and we have because of what Christ has done. So he walks through a couple of things, and, and now in chapter 4 we're going to see a comparison 
of the child to the slave. And he's using both Roman uh, 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 culture and Jewish culture to help people understand uh, how it's you, you, can, you can lose your way, you can get confused and not understand the impact of God's grace if you only look for a moment. So he says here in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. There's a point, he says, in, in Jewish culture and Roman culture as well, and we can relate to it in our own culture, that when you are a child, you do not have all the benefits of full adulthood and the blessings that come with that. And so he's saying the same is true in, in, in faith in Christ is that early on as a child, he's speaking to, to, to the Jews and their heritage, when you were children under the law, you, you, it looked the same as those who were slaves. Well, well, well how, how does that work? He says, look, when a young child was brought up in a household, he had no responsibility or rights yet because he was too young to, to take those on. And so in essence, he had no more actual rights than a slave in that same household or a servant in that household, even though he is going to come to own everything his mom and dad have. That's what the difference is. He's going to come and own it. The servant and the slave just works for the day, and he, he, he owns, he takes nothing with him. But he says later on, something happens. When that child matures, he is counted as an heir. He is counted as one who will take on all of the assets, all Legally, he will assume everything that his parents leave him. It says, verse 3, In the same way also, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I think when he says we were children, he's thinking about Jewish history. And early on in our history, because you, if you go back to chapter 3, he says this, verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He's saying, before Christ was proclaimed and the gospel of Christ, we were under the law and we were captive to the law. We were slaves under the law. We weren't free. We were slaves under the law. Then he says, uh, imprisoned until the coming faith will be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. I want you to notice some parallels. When he says, until Christ came, it's the same, it, it parallels with the first phrase in verse 23. Now, before faith came, faith in Christ, he's, he's, he's holding together. We were held captive, he says, imprisoned, he says, until the coming faith will be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And he's using that similar illustration to say in the Jewish home, the young child is under a guardian. He's restricted from full ownership and rights until he becomes an adult. And he says, verse 3 of chapter 4, in the same way also when we were children. I think that's reference to 
early in the Jewish uh, 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 history, they were under the law and therefore shut out from many of its privileges that God had in mind. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Then verse 4 starts with the word but. It shows a strong transition. It's a contrast to the previous period. Something changes now. But what is it that changes? It says, but when the fullness of time had come. Again, I think he's talking about all of history and that Christ is coming into history and he's making a change in everything. When the fullness of time had come, when God declared it was time and he was ready, he's going to do something. What? In verse 4, when the fullness of time, verse 8, I mean, when the, where am I? Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth his son. He sent Jesus. This notes here that Jesus is born of a woman and born under the law. In other words, he's born as a human being, human flesh. He's born under the law. He has the same constraint that had enslaved everybody else because they couldn't keep it. He's not going to be enslaved because he can keep it and he's going to change everything. God sent forth his son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption talks about the legal right that we have now and claim that we have as children of God. That comes through Christ's coming. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Can we deal with that just a little bit? Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. How does the spirit come? Or, or what, what, what precipitates or what brings on the Holy Spirit, us possessing the Holy Spirit? It's us being sons. It's not doing anything else. It's us being children of God. In other words, it's when God gives us life, when we are born again and born from above, what happens? The Holy Spirit is sent to each and every believer to possess that believer. And with that, he talks about this adoption as sons. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The term Abba is a term of endearment. We would use the term daddy. Is that we have a special intimate relationship because we've been born again. The, the, the Son has come to set us free. The Holy Spirit has come to live within us. And the Father now is our daddy in an intimate, special way. Not, not, not just, you know, Father in some formal sense but in a very connected, practical, everyday way, God the Father is our daddy. So faith is real and faith is intimate. Jesus often in his prayers would pray to God in a way that troubled some people. So who are you talking to as father? We know who your father is. Says, no, you don't. You really don't. I pray to my father. You think my father is Joseph, but he's not. 
I pray to my Father. My Father is in heaven. He is Lord over everything, and I can call him uniquely my Father. In this term, he says, we can call him Daddy. That we are intimately connected with him because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So because we are children of God, we have possession of all that God gives to us. And uh, that includes eternal life that Jesus Christ brings and all that's connected with that. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, and rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying, look, before you knew God, you were slaves those things that aren't God. He's talking about the uh, um, de demonic influences and powers that aren't God, but do enslave people. We see that operating in our world today, don't we? We see it all over. It says, before you came to Christ, Satan was over you in so many different types of ways. Not only influenced you, he empowered you and he kept, he, he, he enslaved you. But he says, now that you have come to know God. I, I like the way, you notice how he rephrases that? Now that you have come to know God, or rather, he said, let me put it better, to be known by God. Does that impact your thinking anyway? When, when, when the Word of God talks about this salvation that we have, and even the process of it, he says, you didn't just come to know God in, in, in a direct sense. You know God. It's an indirect. God has... You, God has made himself known to you. God is the one doing the action here. Now that you have come to know God, but rather to be known by God. There's a difference. It may seem like a subtle difference, but it's a difference in our understanding of who does the acting in this salvation that we've come to, to enjoy. It's God who does it. He initiated it. He he, he performed it, and you and I are just the beneficiaries of it. We didn't set out to do this. It's like, you know, I guess I'm going to go and meet God. I'm going to start a relationship with God. No, God started that. He initiated. He did it. And now you have come to be known by God. You know, it's good in that. For one, it takes the glory out of us, and it brings it to God. But another thing it does, it takes the worry out of us. If it's something that you initiated or something that you did, you got to wonder, did I do it right? Is it permanent? Or if I did it, can it be undone? But since it's something that God does, the worry is out. He did it. He did it right. And guess what? He completes it. He continues it, and he doesn't stop it. He doesn't cancel it. It's good. It's good to know and have that security. But he, he asked them, if that's the case, how can you turn back? How can you experience the grace of God and then turn back and say, well, no, 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 I, I, I want to work for this. 
I want to obey the law in such a way that it brings me salvation. He says it's such a foreign and foolish thought that we would enjoy God's grace and then go back to slavery. Go back to something that we could never master, something that we could never gain, that is righteousness on our own, when we have first, when we realize that Christ has accomplished that, how can we turn back to anything other than that? So Paul is, is, is you can see in his tone, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? If you've been freed from being a slave, how is it in your mind you think it's a good thing to turn back into slavery? This doesn't make sense in any way of thinking. He says, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. These are all observances of the law that they were doing in such a way to grant them rightness with God or to be right, to be okay. Why do you do that? Why, why, why would you Im, involve yourself and invest in that? In verse 11, I'm afraid I've made, I may have labored over you in vain. That if you turn back, maybe you never turned to begin with, if that's the case. And he says in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. He said, I'm free. <laughs> you know, uh, Paul earlier in, in, in Galatians said to Peter, how can you, being a Jew, be free to act like a Gentile, but then you expect the Gentiles to act like Jews? So that, that doesn't balance. Paul is saying here, look, I am free. Even though I'm a Jew, I am free from the law. And I thank God for that. He says, I'm like you. You were Gentiles. You didn't, you didn't have the law as, as your guardian. You didn't have it as your structure. You were free from that in a sense. And I've, I've become free like you. Why don't you become then like I am? Why would you go back to that? Then Paul, verses 12 through 20, we see Paul's concern and his care for the believers in Galatia. What we see is the attitude that he has towards them, the attitude that they had towards him, and the attitude that the false teachers had towards them as well. And he, he begins to say, look, when I first came to you and I preached, you embraced me with all love, and you never rejected me. You never cast me out. What happened? to that dearness and closeness and attitude that we had, a relationship that we once had. Let's read through it. He says, verse 13, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Paul said, you know, I had some trouble. I was there in your midst because of, a, of, a, of, we don't know, not disclosed exactly what the bodily ailment Paul had, but it was, it was pretty uh, big. They couldn't miss it. And yet it says they didn't despise him because of it. 
It was a burden to them, he says. It was a trial to you, but you did not scorn or despise me. But it says, you received me as an angel. Paul is saying, in spite of the affliction that I had and what I was going through, you didn't reject me or despise me or think little of me, but you received me as you would have the Lord Jesus himself. And what Paul wants to say is, what's happened since then? I haven't changed. I'm still the same person. You, you can see his tone when he asked the question uh, in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see, the false teachers that come in to turn them from the gospel and to turn them against Paul. Because Paul stands with the gospel and stands on the gospel. And so now they had developed a different attitude towards Paul. It's amazing. Paul says, now I'll tell you the truth and you're mad at me? You hate me for that? But that's too often true. When the gospel comes out and speaks, you know, it, it really begins to separate people. Those who are true to the gospel begin to embrace those who preach the gospel. But those who don't enjoy, don't embrace, don't love the gospel despise those who preach the gospel. You don't think it's true. You preach the gospel long enough. You begin to tell the truth to people, and they don't like to hear that. But those who have been changed by the truth are, are, are not threatened by the fact that they are sinners and on their way to hell. They, 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 it, it doesn't mean anything that, that it, it doesn't hurt them that there's no good in them. But it's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is necessary for a Savior to die for their sin Otherwise, their eternity, their eternal soul would be in jeopardy. They enjoy what the gospel says. They rejoice at the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, and he was preaching in Romans, that God be true and every man a liar. He says, let the gospel stand for what it is. We have difficulty when we speak truth the people, why is that? Jesus had the same problem. Did Jesus speak wrongly? Was he, was he offensive? Yes, he was offensive because the truth offended people. And it brought them to hatred because they wanted to boast in themselves. And when we preach the gospel, we kick the crutch of boasting out from under people. And they fall. But they realize they were falling anyway. They need to lean on Christ and nothing else. I love the song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That means none of our righteousness will do. Not yours, not mine, not anybody's. And when we condemn that old, old righteousness in ourselves, some people get mad and they get angry. Paul says, you hate me now, I'm your enemy now because I tell you the truth. You see, it's set up for other people to come in and tell them a lie that sounds good to them, and they embrace that. That's exactly what was happening. Look at verse uh, 17. They make much of you, but, no, but for no good purpose. 
They come to deceive people. Be careful of those who flatter with their lips to make you feel like something. What are they out for? What are they trying to accomplish? Paul said at the start, remember in chapter 1, he says, if I preach the gospel, who am I trying to appease? Who am I trying to please? Verse 10, for I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, look, if you want to be liked by everybody, you're not going to respond well to the gospel and God's call in your life. You're going to have some conflict there. God says you need to be sold out for the truth of the gospel regardless of what others think of you and, and, and how they treat you because of it. The gospel is just that real, that powerful, and that precious that we need to stand in it. Paul said, you know, I had a, a big bodily ailment that was obvious, and, and yet because you, you never treated me wrongly, with that. But now I tell you the truth, and you hate me. You reject me. You despise me. Then others come along, and they flatter you, and they lead you astray, and you're taking it all, hook, line, and sinker. He says, you know, this is your attitude towards me before. I testify, in verse 15, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You're giving your own sight for me. You still don't know exactly what Paul's ailment was. It doesn't really matter in the truth of, of, of things, but we know that they had a tenderness for Paul when he preached the gospel to them at first, and that is the true response of true believers. Later on in the chapter, uh, later on in the book, as you read through Galatians, you see Paul uh, challenging them um, be a blessing to those who, who teach and, and, and speak the gospel to you um, because they have a hard time. They speak truth, and they often are rejected by others. I come across people to this day who, who still do not like me, not because I'm an unlikable person. I'm sure i got some things that people won't always like. That That's fine. I understand that. But they don't like me because I've spoken the truth to them or, 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 or challenged them in certain areas. But you know what? God has, has given me grace. I don't need them to like me. <laughs> I can get along just fine because my approval comes from God. Paul was saying, be careful, be, be aware of that, that if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to pay a price for it. You're going to pay a price, and he is using them as an example. He says, you yourselves has turned against me, and yet these others, he says in verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. He says, look, it's good to be encouraged. Not false flattery, but it's good to be encouraged by, by others. We need that. We, 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 uh, um, we need to encourage each other. It's good to hear nice things from people, and when that's appropriate, that needs to be done. Paul did that well as, as well with them. 
And notice his tone. He, he, he speaks to them as, 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 as brothers in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, he said. Verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, another tone, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. He says, I'm, I'm like a woman in labor as I'm trying to bring you into where you need to be in a healthy, strong infant child. But I fear, he says, <laughs> verse 20, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone. I'd love to just say pleasant things, but there's something at stake here. It's the gospel and it's the truth, and I can't walk away from that. I can't sugarcoat that. I can't say it's something that is not. I've got to speak to the truth of that. I'd love to change my tone. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> it's the false teachers who speak and sweet. Tell them the things they want to hear, and yet he says they, they, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They're in. They want to, they it says, they, they want to cast you out. They want to shut you out. Then in verse 21 through 31, he gives them another illustration from the law. We saw that in the beginning of this chapter, illustration from the law. He, he, he ends this, part, this portion with a, another illustration from the law. And Paul, again, as I said before, is an expert in the law, and he uses the law to help them see the absurdity of their position, of going to the law for salvation. It was not meant for them to... to to, uh, um, to, to, to seek righteousness by obedience to the law. So he speaks to them in this instance. Again, he's talking about Abraham's life. He says, verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He said, let me explain what the law shows you. He says, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The slave, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The son of the free woman was born through promise. He said, let me tell you what this means. Now let's talk a little bit about Abraham. God had promised Abraham that through him all families of the world would be blessed. His offspring, and Paul makes this point, that singular offspring points to Christ. Through Abraham's seed or offspring, God will bring salvation to Jew and Gentile. So he says Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free. Who are these? This Hagar is a slave woman and Sarah is the free. Sarah was his wife. Hagar was a maid. And if you remember the story, you can read back in, Gal excuse me, in Genesis chapter 16. Before that, in chapter 15 and earlier than that, in chapter 12 and so on, God said to Abraham, look, I'm going to bless you exceedingly. And I'm going to give you a child. And this child, you are going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham was like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, but I ain't got no son. I ain't got no children. I've been married faithfully to my wife, but she can't have children. So what's with this promise? It's like God was telling him nice things that he wanted to hear, but he didn't see it happening. God kept saying, no, 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 I'm going to make this happen. 
So obviously he shares this with his wife, Sarah, and, they, and Sarah comes up with a plan. He said, you know, Abraham, this really hasn't happened yet, and I got this maid, my servant, and uh, you take her as your quote-unquote wife and have children by her since I can't have children. Why don't you do it that way? Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I hope you're saying amen today. That sounds ridiculous. But you know, we talk ourselves into things that are foolish. And what it, what it shows is a vain attempt to accomplish what God wants to bring about through our own efforts. And Paul uses that for a reason. That's why he calls the children of Hagar according to the flesh. I want you to see this because God doesn't put down Hagar or even Ishmael. But what he puts down is this effort by Sarah and ultimately by Abraham to accomplish his purpose in their own power. He says, anytime you do that, you're going to miss it. You're not going to do what God wants done, and you're going to mess things up. And so Sarah says, go ahead, Abraham, take her and, and have a child by her. And I don't know why Abraham was okay with that, but he was. And so, Hagar was pregnant. And while she was pregnant, it says she despised Sarah. Now, I don't know exactly when what went on. You, you ever get in one of those battles where two people are fighting? I, I was going to say two women, but it could be two men just as well. It could be two men, but it's two people are fighting. And you don't get what it is they're fighting about. You know, it's like, come on, can't y'all just get along? But there's some conflict going on there, and something ain't right. And it, it, it seemed like Haggai kind of looked at Sarah funny. And it seemed like Sarah looked at everything that Haggai did and everything she's, she said, and she didn't like it. There was some strong conflict going on. But we look at it from our point and say, well, Sarah, what'd you do that for in the first place? You started the mess. You see, she can't have children, and she, she, she thought it was a good idea at the time, but now she's like, this woman, she thinks she's something. Now she's going to bring children to my husband, and I can't do it. I, I don't know all that was going on internally there, but there was a strong conflict to the point where Sarah says, you, you got to go. You got to get out of here. Can you imagine Abraham saying, well, wait a minute, she, she's carrying my child. Well, what's up with that? But she's got to go. She's kicked out. Now, to show you God's providence and his grace, he calls out to Hagar. After she runs away, she leaves and, Hagar, what you doing? What's up? It's like Hagar said, what, what do you mean, God? You see the mess I'm in? I didn't ask for this. I'm in this woman's house, and now I'm carrying her husband's baby, and I'm kicked out. Why? I got nowhere to go. Can you see God stepping into that mess? He said, Hagar, go back. <laughs> I got you. Go back. She goes back how the situation was between her and, 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 and Sarai, but God instructed her, she went back. 
He says, I'm going to take care. You're going to have a child, a son. His name's going to be Ishmael, and I'm going to bless him. Isn't that unusual for God to do that? I'm going to bless him. You know why he blessed him? Because he is the son of Abraham. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael, born of Haggai. And he had another son of promise. You see, they finally learned their lesson. We can't do what only God can do. We better trust God to do it. And so Abraham and Sarah said, well, God's going to have to do this his way. And they finally waited on God. Here's, a, here's Abraham, almost 100 years old, Sarah, 90 years old. And they have a child of their own. God did that. God does the miracle. Man makes the mess. That's exactly what happened in their life. Now, Agar comes back. Years later, tells about 13, 14 years later, Isaac was a little baby. He's born now, the son of promise, right? And he's about to be weaned, and they have a little celebration for him. And somehow something else is going on. See, there's still conflict here. And Ishmael's about 14 years old, and he's making fun of this whole situation. We're not giving all the details, but he's making fun of it. And Sarah has had enough. That's it. I'm sick of this mess. You take him and her and get him out of here. And that's what she does. Abraham is like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. What's happening here? God again takes Hagar. He says, don't worry about it. I got a place for you and a place for him. But I want you to read how it happens in Genesis 21. Now, you can read Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, and you can get the gist of, of what I just told you. Read that during the week, will you? Some of y'all will. Amen. This is Genesis 21. I'm going to start at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. This is Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Abraham was just, he didn't know what to do. We know what God told Abraham? Do what she said. Do what she said. Why did he do that? Because he has a plan in mind. And I want you to, I, I brought all that to you, so you go back to Galatians chapter 4, and I want you to see this. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, you got Hagar, you got Ishmael, slavery. But the, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Let me skip down a little bit. 
Verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also is it now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He's saying, look, our heritage is not connected to Hagar, that's, that's the, the, the woman, that's a slave woman, and her child is the one according to the flesh. What I mean by according to the flesh, that was Abraham's and Sarah's attempt to accomplish God's purpose in their own doing, and God is not going to okay that. It's not something he has against the child himself. He's saying, look, I'm developing for you a picture of the principle that I have. It doesn't work when you try to do it yourself. And so he says, cast out that woman because that's not how God works his salvation to his people. That's not how God accomplishes his purpose and his promise. He's going to do it according to his power and his doing by his grace. So he says, you don't go back to the slavery in that mode. You don't go back to the law in obedience to that. You go through the Lord Jesus Christ because as, as impossible as it seems, God is able to accomplish what he promised by his power. That's what salvation means. What are you trusting in? What are you depending on? Is it your own doing and your own scheming and your own purpose and your own plan and your own power? Is it what God is doing, what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ? Go back to verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, that's very confusing to me. But what he's saying is, it, 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 I believe it's comparing Sarah to Hagar. And it's tell, telling Sarah to rejoice even though she can't have children. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Children of the desolate one will be Hagar. She's going to have more children. <laughs> but God is still doing his work and his promise. He said, look, regardless of how messed up things seem, and they messed up because of your own doing, <laughs> right? Regardless of how much a mess that is, you can't work it out in your power and regardless of how it looks on the outside, God will accomplish his purpose even against all odds. So worship him. Serve him. He makes this a point that the son of the slave woman oppresses the son of the free woman. Just like Ishmael laughed and ridiculed 
young little baby Isaac. We don't know how he did that or what that was like, but we know that it was done. Father's saying, look, the same thing is happening today. What is Paul speaking of? He's saying, those false teachers are ridiculing me and they're ridiculing the gospel. Don't you dare listen to them. They've been doing this thing forever. It's the way the world works. And recognize it for what it is. Look at those last verses. Verse 29, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also is it, so also it is now. Understand that that conflict continues. And Paul was in the middle of that conflict trying to make the gospel known and prominent to them. You're going to have problems when you embrace the gospel. You're going to have conflicts galore. You're going to have challenges all over. But we need to stand in that gospel and live in it and stay in it. We recognize God's working through that. He provides what only he can do what he, only he can accomplish. That is to bring about his salvation by his means, not by ours. Trust him. Glory in him. Stay in him. Paul could talk to people in Galatians and say, look, I hope you, I, I've seen you tempted to, to, to stray away. Get back where you belong. Under Christ. And nothing else. Trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. Trusting in God's provision and his provision alone. Not trying to do things on your own. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Doesn't it seem like something that Abraham and Sarah will, will, will be just nodding their heads saying, I can testify to that. I should have done it that way. Abraham, the father of our faith, made mistakes. But the scripture is saying, look, <laughs> God had this in mind, and Abraham could provide it himself. God accomplishes it. Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in only him? And that means are you trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone? Not just to start your salvation, but to continue and to sustain you, to walk in him continually. Father, we pray that Christ might be our trust. He might be our hope. He might be our reason for joy and our reason alone. That we might glory in him. We might see the way that you've made provisions for us through Christ and we might settle in that and rest in it. We thank you for your word today, Lord. We pray that you would just make it plain and clear to us and challenge and encourage us to walk 